Osiris Production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Good. You're listening to the smooth sounds of Brent Midland and his Grateful Dead on KC100, your home for the softest hits. I don't know where I land with this. Me and the guys talked about it on the show you're about to listen to, ostensibly, if you're still among our audience. One thing I want to say up front with regard to Midland, you know, I tease Midland because I love Midland. Uh, he brought a ton to the band and go to heaven is the first time we hear Brent Midland on record. So that's pretty special. And it definitely marks a turning point. It's kind of their third act. I know we can append Vince and obviously all the other post Jerry incarnations of the dead, but really this feels to me like the last truly substantial dead and certainly the last studio uh, offerings from the dead featured Brent Midland and obviously he's an incredible player amazing singer his musical sensitivity is kind of off the charts so when I poke fun it's really just for fun I have nothing but respect for Brent Midland and what he brought to the Grateful Dead in his time with the band and we might as well toss Mickey Hart into that you know mickey as i've said before was an essential part of the hydra-headed monstrosity of that was primal dead and you know even though my favorite period of the dead happens to coincide with a single drummer on the throne uh, i really do appreciate mickey as a primary mentor for that drummer uh, whose tenure i prefer And also because Mickey brings a lot of depth and insight into other areas that I'm actually very interested in personally and frankly obsessed in terms of how they connect to the broader Dediverse. In fact, my next book is going to plunge right into those hearts of darkness and hearts of lightness uh, that Mickey seems to balance within the band and his strange Mickey way. So all the love to Mickey Hart too. Well, folks, I don't really have anything else other than thanks a lot for sticking around. Uh, and also we have that little website we made dead to me pod.bandcamp.com where you can get the theme song that everyone's been emailing me about uh, a couple other little tidbits up there and more to come. All right, Kevin, Ed, let's do this. Did anyone read the Rolling Stone review for this album from from the time when it came out? I did not. No. Did you? <laughs> Can I treat our listeners to the closing paragraph here? Just just a sentence or two? Totally. Yeah. Uh, it closes by saying there are two positive signs on this record. Far From Me and Easy to Love You, both primarily the work of keyboardist Brent Midland. Wow. Uh. So, Gauntlet Throne. Yeah, tell me the byline here. David Frick? J.M. DeMatteis. Now, there's a handle. So, have we internet stalked him? No, he's a comic book guy. 
Really? Oh, is he? Yeah, he, he makes comic books. Yeah, that was honestly his last ever review for Rolling Stone oh. and made him realize that he could never be a music critic. Damn. And then went on to make uh, comic books. I guess one bad call is all it takes. <laughs> well, guys, I'm out. <laughs> I quit. Officially retired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, this season alone would do it. But that is a boldly contrarian take on Brent Midland's contributions to this album. I'd say, and more power to him. Yeah, so here's the new guy, Brent Midland. He's got crazy eyes. He's got a shiny new organ. He's an amazing player, killer singer, yeah. uh, songwriter. Mm, you know, a lot of this stuff just sort of sounds like third-rate Michael McDonald ballads to me. I I'm with you on that. Cool. But Kevin means it as a compliment. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Savage burn. Savage. Well, I want to get this out of the way because this is like a weird album in the catalog. This is the 11th album. Dude, they're all weird albums. <laughs> of all the studio albums that are maligned, this one is the one that if you if you pull it out and give it to somebody, they're like, oh no. True story. Just based on the cover alone. They're like, we're not doing this. This is not happening. Stuff. This cover is utterly radioactive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The problem is, is that it has what ended up being some of their best songs, which are not the Brent songs, but that can be forgiven. Can it? I mean, I'd rather hear like, don't step on the tracks or something. This band, as we've talked about, has always taken these like weird risks and had weird accidents in the studio right. where they seemingly don't know what they're doing. Yeah, well, that's my favorite aspect of the studio records. And I'm just not getting that here. It's like they're trying to wrap their heads around this emerging decade or something. It comes out in 1980, and you hear a lot of that starting to show up in this recording. Yeah. But it's so out of context with the band. Totally incongruous. It doesn't work. <laughs> As a dead album. Oh. But for me, there's so much to love in this album. It's insane. Except the Brent songs. Bummer, man. It's only because this is his first time out. Yeah, it's his first time out. But I think it's more like the quality that he brings to the dead is totally new, uh, especially in the songwriting department. Absolutely. I mean, we've gotten used to Donna Jean's mystical Native American Jesus people campfire Calgon <laughs> tunes. Yeah. yeah. We like a band, right? And when they do something bad, that's kind of hard. Yeah. And you really look for something to like really just lift them up like, oh, this is okay. <laughs> this is going to work out. Yeah. It's Star Wars prequel syndrome, man. And you don't feel good about it, but nope. you do it anyways yep and that's true of any kind of confirmation bias <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's yes. trump yes it's the yes. dead yes. <laughs> it's the world's religions you know if yeah. the cult leader does something kind of fucked up there's gotta be a reason for it just like there's gotta be something redeeming in these brent midland songs i just know it has to be something redeeming on this exactly yes. i mean compositionally they're not incompetent First of all, it's exactly what Brent's previous band, Silver, would have done. Yes. And these two songs specifically were originally intended for Bobby's solo Yeah. Band. And this is a particular type of rock that I've been like spending a lot of time with. Yep. It is also exactly in line with Poco's Indian Summer. Yeah. And Ed knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, this stuff on itself, removed from the Grateful Dead, is absolutely my jam. I think overall the band is kind of veering into the 80s, but nobody really knows what the 80s are yet. Mm. There always seems to be kind of a gap year when decades roll over. Um, I think by 1983, everybody has 
or is starting to get a grasp on what the era's sonic footprint is. Right. But the dead in 1980 have no idea. And it seems in retrospect that some of their fans were baffled by a few of these production choices. I think overall it sounds competitive with Mm -hmm. the stuff that was out at the time or coming out. I'm always reminded of those Peach Boys albums where Carl Wilson was the band leader, the ones mm-hmm. from the late 70s. It's kind of just got a stock, generic rock pop sound. <laughs> you know, add some twang and it's Poco. Alabama Getaway is like a sprinkle of canned heat, but it sounds kind of sterile. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the sterile 80s, I wanted to ask you guys a question. Do you like Phil Collins? Absolutely. I've been a big Genesis fan ever since the release of their 1980 album, Duke. Before that, I really didn't understand any of their work. Too artsy, too intellectual. It was on Duke where Phil Collins' presence became more apparent. I think Invisible Touch was the group's undisputed masterpiece. It's an epic meditation on intangibility. At the same time, it deepens and enriches the meaning of the preceding three albums. Christy, take off your robe. Oh, good. I can stop the bit now, for fuck's sake. It's like the world's longest rickroll. Well executed, and I think we were just a little incredulous. Oh, thank you. I promise not to do it again. And now back to Crazy Eyes Midland. Uh, And speaking of, I think we can agree that these songs maybe might not be the worst things in the world if somehow they appeared on an album with a different band's name on the cover? Yeah. I guess I'll say a couple of things about Brent in general and then about Easy to Love You. I find the interplay between Brent and Jerry to be the best guitar piano interplay that that the dead frankly ever had wow. keith was you know undoubtedly a a monster of a pianist just snag the url monsterpianist.com <laughs> but that's foreplay tell us about the interplay <laughs> i don't know how keith would have fared in the 80s yeah i guess is, is is perhaps my point here and i think brent midland really brought something that was sonically interesting right. he brought textures that you don't really hear in the band's live shows until 1979 or so and when i fell in love with easy to love you it was because because it came up on a, I think it was Kansas City, 1979, which is a lovely show. I think it got a release. It's just a really sweet, you know, four-minute little ditty that lands in the middle of a Grateful Dead set. Yeah, there's, there's really, you know, Jerry really is sort of like picking out the the accompanying chords carefully and giving Brent space to solo on it. And Brent plays a very stately and well-articulated solo, and it's a kind of tightness and crispness that you didn't always get with the Dead Live. So, no, I doubt. think it's a really sweet song. Well, it's clear that Jerry liked that kid. Yeah. 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 And, you know, Jerry was always magnanimous with new folks coming into the band, and he made space for Brent. Absolutely. Two songs on this record. Second song, Far From Me, and then Easy To Love You. Still not easy for me, but that's okay. I wouldn't say to someone who doesn't know the dead, you should start with Easy To Love You, nor would I recommend probably any Brent tune to them as a starting point. (laughs) It's totally cool. We take your meaning. Yeah. And let's move on from Mr. Midland with a general observation that I'd like to make. It seems that at this point in the dead's career, whatever experimentalism remains in the studio is inside the songs rather than in noisy bits added on or feedback excursions or crickets. I'm thinking more of like compositional experimentalism in songs like Feel Like a Stranger, which longtime listeners will know I have had a love-hate relationship with that now 
I'm happy to say, has resolved into pure love. But that's just one song on the album. Sure, there's like a couple more that I like a lot. But is that enough for me to say that Go to Heaven doesn't suck? I don't know. I'm sort of thinking about where we are in the timeline. And I think the Terrapin to Go to Heaven run might be what gives the studio albums their stigma. I think this is a fairly unremarkable run of albums at a time when the band's fan base was growing. I know. They, you know, they don't release a real sort of interesting live album for a while. You know, Reckoning is sort of exists outside of the... Yeah. So I kind of am thinking about this now. You know, there are interesting moments on all of those albums and the live shows from that time period are, I think, among, you know, my favorite from 76 to sort of 81 or so, 83 maybe. Yeah. But I think this run of albums might be where, where the stigma comes from now that I think about it. I look at other stretches of their career and I'm hard pressed to find as unremarkable a stretch of studio albums as these three. And it feels maybe extra disappointing coming off of Terrapin because we've gotten used to this more sumptuous dead in terms of orchestration and perhaps a cleaner sounding dead in terms of the studio presentation and a more progressive dead in terms of composition. And frustratingly, we only have flashes of that on Go to Heaven, whereas I would have expected the follow-up album to Terrapin to reveal a next-level studio dead. And it's arguable whether we ever actually got that in the 1980s. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Some people would say In the Dark could be it, and we'll talk about it next. But this one here seems kind of like a bunt. I mean, Bobby's working really hard. Um, You know, two of the songs that I didn't really like at all on this record or live, Lost Sailor and Saint of Circumstance, I kind of found my way in by playing along to Go to Heaven Mm -hmm. on the drums. Um, I'm a guitar player. Uh, I'm a pretty good drummer. But it's only been in recent months that I've been able to kind of polish those skills. And for whatever reason, playing along to those songs really gave me a better sense of what Bobby was shooting for in the arrangements. And also a greater appreciation for Barlow's contributions lyrically. Yeah. Can we talk for a second about Althea? Sir, we are duty bound. It's just such a unique entry in the Dead's catalog. It's lyrically distinct from other Hunter works, and it has... A structure that's so simple and so formal, but it's it's not presented in a straightforward way. It's really got that sort of sinewy guitar line. It's just a song that comes together in a way that's just so wonderful. Yeah, yeah it's it's by far my favorite Dead song. There's like all over the Dead songs, and then there's Althea. You know, it's funny. It was never my favorite, um, but at the end of the day, the most powerful thing about Althea for me is how it seems to encapsulate how Robert Hunter viewed his friend Jerry Garcia at that time. Yeah. Uh, Maybe communicating something to Jerry about the state that Jerry was in that Jerry couldn't or wouldn't see himself. There's sort of a duality there. And I agree with your take, Casey. I very much view this as an interior monologue. And I think it's rooted in aletheia, which is the Greek word for truth. And the song is sort of rife with references to treachery and honesty. And Garcia was a coward. I mean, if you've read any of those books, he could not have a difficult conversation with someone. He certainly couldn't with the women in his life. Anyone else who was within arm's length, he would make them break up with someone before he went and disappointed a woman who was waiting for him. So I think there's something really kind of interesting about the song Althea, and it's partly because, you know, Hunter has a tendency 
to fill out every corner of a picture he's drawing. And I think Terrapin does that really well. And it's, and it's beautiful and it's ornate and it's, it's very well composed. He doesn't leave a lot of room for ambiguity. And Althea, for me, stands alone in his work because of that, because there's so much open-endedness to it. Interesting. You know, I might make that observation about other Hunter songs, but in this case, some of it seems pretty specific. Like, oh, yeah. your friends are getting most concerned. Yeah. And you mentioned deception, and there's a particular flavor of deception called self-deception that addicts are particularly great yeah. at. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I would agree that a lot of this is maybe too ambiguous for us to nail down, and that's a good thing. You have taken a turn on this, man, because like uh, it's not like four years ago you were like, uh, Althea. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I guess I have. Well, that's the whole point of the podcast was that there was this transformation. And yeah. that transformation is ongoing, I suppose. I'm just waiting for that afternoon when Mickey Hart comes by with a bag of crickets. <laughs> It's a sustainable form of protein, so don't knock it. <laughs> I don't knock it. I just don't prefer to eat it, just like I don't prefer those Brent Midland songs. You, preference is fine. Whatever you prefer, that's how life works. Indeed it is. I think fans might have preferred, I don't know, different album art to start. But it's not just about the album art. It's not just about the music. I think it's the idea that we know what this band is capable of. And frustratingly, it doesn't appear on records in this era. And a lot of that is just because the Grateful Dead had kind of given up on the idea of being well represented in yeah. that area. Uh, because of the product marketplace of the 1970s, albums and album retail was a key component of the music industry and the Grateful Dead participated in that music industry even as they tried to exist apart from it. I kind of got over my frustration with the whole studio album thing by just seeing them as artifacts of the situations that produced them. And obviously some of those situations were quite bizarre, but... Everything from the pharmaceutical enhancement to the creative vision to the bankrolling to the personnel is a product of its time and place. And there's really no way to get around that. And so if we just accept what we're being presented with as it is, we may find new ways to appreciate that enigma that is the Grateful Dead. Mm -hmm. Because we sure as shit ain't ever going to solve it. And that'll do it for another episode of Dead to Me. We're getting to the finish line of season two. Gonna try to get them out more quickly for you. Thanks for bearing with us. Till next time.